the Allies are finally in France. Today's Peninsula War story is a brilliant one. Multiple contested river crossings, constant attacks against an entrenched enemy, a battle that could be considered Wellington's finest, and then finally a bloody fight at Toulouse, tragically fought after the war was already over. Welcome back to the Redcoat History podcast and YouTube channel, the place for people who love learning about the history of the British Army and their allies. Today is the final episode of my long-running season following the narrative of the Peninsula War fought in Portugal and Spain and the south of France between 1807 and 1814. It's been a long road for Wellington and his Redcoats, and me, since they first landed at Mondego Bay to support the Portuguese. There will of course be other standalone episodes about certain aspects of the Peninsula War, but the long-running chronological coverage of the battles finishes today. So before we crack on with the story guys, I just wanted to mention that I have a monthly newsletter, the Redcoat History Dispatch. When you sign up for it over at redcoathistory.com, you also receive a free digital copy of my book on the Anglo-Zulu War. A few people have also been asking me recently if they can sign up for my Patreon account, well, I actually don't have one, but I do have a donation page where you can help towards the running costs of the show. That can be found over at co-fi.com slash redcoathistory. That's ko-fi.com slash redcoathistory. Yes, it's a funny URL, but you can find the link in the show notes. I've also posted a link to the relevant maps of today's battles that you may find useful to follow the complicated set of manoeuvres. In the last episode, we saw the Allies capture the strategically important port of San Sebastian. But what happened next? Let's find out. Here's Marcus Beresford, himself a distant relative of Marshal William Carr Beresford, one of the key Allied commanders during these coming battles. First, well, there are three standout events, I suppose, that follow in the autumn of 1813. And that is the crossing of the Bidasoa in October, uh, the Battle of the Nivelle in uh, early November, and, and the Battle or Battles of Nive in December. And so for three months more, there's this fighting going on in southwest France. And I think it's a testimony to Soult's endurance that he manages to hold the show together over these three months. And, you know, we talked earlier on about the fact that Wellington had come 400 kilometers in 40 days to get to Victoria. Well, uh, between, um, I I suppose, the the end of August, early September uh, and December, um, there's only another 60 or 70 kilometers up the road crossing the French frontier and getting up to the environ of Bayonne. I'm not saying that as a criticism, but I'm just saying that that's, that's how things pan out. So um, the crossing of the Bidasoa is a, a relatively uh, easy event for Wellington. Uh, he fools Soult um, into thinking that his main uh, uh, approach into France is going to be much further west against the French middle, the French left uh, of the French line through the Maya Pass and down the Nivelle Valley. And he fooled Soult. And as a result, on the 7th of October, when they crossed the Bidasoa at low tide um, in large numbers, um, he's only opposed by Ray's division of some 10,000 men. And um, it's interesting because uh, there is evidence, certainly, that 
uh, Wellington was assisted in this crossing uh, by Basque fishermen who showed them the way to get th- across the estuary at low tide. And here's historian Colonel Nick Lipscomb. Well, I'd like to make uh, a couple of observations. I think Bidasa was was important in that it put uh, Wellington's foot, if not feet, into France. And that uh, was a significant thing. Um, I um, always like to try and put myself in the minds of these great men. And I have often uh, wondered why Sue was taken so easily with uh, the Bidasa, because it's like a game of poker. And um, then I was reminded of the first time that these uh, two men actually fought each other, which was at the siege of Porto uh, in 1809 in April, where Sue was, of course, commanding the French armies on the North Bank. Wellington, uh, having arrived, he's Wellesley then, uh, to uh, to move up against following the debacle with Moore and the retreat to Corona. So he's now got to get back into uh, into Iberia. And he does that on the strength of that memorandum that he, he wrote for, for Castlereagh uh, that he could defend Portugal. When he gets up to Porto, uh, Sue has got to make a decision. Is he going to attack by the coast or is he going to attack inland? And of course, he says, I know this bloke, Wellesley. He puts um, an enormous amount of importance on the Navy and on the coast, and he's going to attack there. And that's where most of his patrols were, and that's where his strength was. But of course, Wellesley doesn't do that. He comes inland. And yet here we are, we fast forward a few years later, and Sue would have been sitting there saying, right, I know what this guy's going to do. He's not going to go at the coast. He's going to go inland. And of course, uh, Wellington then goes at the coast and gets uh, a foothold in. But having got a foothold in, he then captures and he captures it again because the uh, the two regiments. And when we talk about a French regiment, we're talking about battalion plus strength because of a French regiment uh, was a tactical organization where, as opposed to a British regiment, which is the minister to headquarters. But two uh, French regiments probably about uh, three and a half battalion strength, about 3,000 men were holding the Grand Rune, as it's, uh, as it's known, this massive uh, feature which dominates that whole area uh, down into uh, the, uh, well, the sort of northern part of uh, the Pyrenees, looking down into France. Um, and it's as a result of those uh, two French regiments um, literally abandoning the Grand Rune. I mean, it seems inconceivable that even the great light division who um, were at this stage um, seemed to be um, uh, unstoppable, uh, that they would have been pushed to have captured it. As a result, they just march onto the top of it and, and sit on it. So Wellington's got that before he then advances and goes for the second piece. And we need to perhaps examine why is Wellington taking something, stopping, taking something, stopping. Why is he only going a tactical bound each time? Perhaps we can come back to that because it is important. Um, But he has a conversation uh, with Colborne, um, who is the uh, commander of um, the uh, one of the light uh, division battalions. And he says to Colborne, um, this is Wellington, he says, those fellows, they're sitting on top of the Grand Rune, looking down now into France. You've got total domination of the terrain from that high point. Looking down, you can see all the way to Bayon 
uh, across the uh, the mighty Adur and beyond. Um, and he, Wellington says, those fellows think themselves invulnerable, uh, but I shall beat them out and with great ease. So he's looking at these redoubts that have been positioned now on these rivers, the Nivelle and the Neve, and then in front of Bayonne. Now, Colborn's a bit confused by this. He says that we may beat them out when your lordship attacks, I have no doubt. But as to with great ease, he says, you know, questioning uh, the Duke. Now, Wellington says, ah, Colborn, with your local knowledge only, you're mm. perfectly right. It does appear difficult. But the enemy have not enough men to man all those works and lines that they occupy. And yet I can pour a greater force on certain points than they can concentrate to resist me. Ah, I see it now, my lord, said Colborn. And that was the point I was making earlier, that um, what uh, uh, Sue has in terms of uh, force availability is all out in the shop window. There is nothing behind the hill. There is no large force, no large reserve that he can move to counter the points that Wellington chooses to puncture the lines in front of him. And that's why we get then two battles, the Nivelle and the Neve, which are very similar in nature, where Wellington actually concentrates um, in certain areas, moving some forward, others uh, holding them once they've captured their objective for the others to catch up. Um, and Sue can do nothing about it because this whole front is being pushed simultaneously. Yes, I think that's important, um, Nick. And, and just to go back to um, a point uh, Christian raised, or you might have raised, about the sort of delays between these various encounters or battles. Um, first of all, after crossing the Bidassoa, remember Pamplona was still not taken and uh, Wellington was de determined not to move further forward until the fall of Pamplona. And that actually happened on the 31st of October. So you have crossing of the Bidassoa on the 7th of October, the fall of Pamplona on the 31st of October, and then the Battle of Nivelle on the 10th of November. And that is, um, the, 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 you said uh, quite rightly, the, the, they had the Grande Rune, and in front of it, um, was the Petit Rune, which uh, was overlooked by the Grand Rune, of course, but was also uh, quite heavily fortified. On, on the 10th of November, uh, again, um, Wellington had Hope stationed uh, on the left of the uh, Allied army, Beresford in the centre with the 3rd, 4th and 7th Division, and Hill over on the right. And what he did, he was he used Beresford actually to punch a hole through the French centre. And uh, Hill came round and by mid-afternoon they were on the, the bridge at Amots together and, and the battle was over um, by mid-afternoon. Effectively, what Wellington had achieved, what he split uh, Soult's army in two, and force Soult to return or to uh, uh, retire to another, a new line back on the Neve. And the reason I, I just wanted to go on about Nivelle a bit is that the question arises about what was Wellington's finest battle. And um, I think Nivelle, he referred to it as his best work, which was an interesting expression. Um, and I think it does bear some discussion because it was fought along a 25 kilometer front rather than the five kilometers at Salamanca. And 
So for that reason alone, I think we, we need to look at it. I mean, obviously, for different reasons, Salamanca and Vittoria stand out. Salamanca, he seized an opportunity when he was on the point of retiring. And Vittoria, I think, is an example of meticulous planning and repeatedly turning the French wings. You know, and the other thing about Nivelle is very interesting was Soult and his commanders, not sure about all the troops, knew about the results of the Battle of Leipzig before the battle on Nivelle. Wellington didn't actually. And he only learns about it from a captured French colonel who he invites to dinner uh, the evening afterwards. And the colonel spills the bean about uh, about the Battle of Leipzig. For any of our listeners who, who might not know, can you give us the one sentence uh, description of what did happen at Leipzig, just to put that into context? Well, Leipzig was a battle uh, that had been a long time in coming. The uh, Austrians, uh, Prussians and the Russians had been um, pretty much uh, backs to the wall in uh, in in in, in um, what was now Eastern Germany up in Prussia, and um, but this was a decisive battle because what the Allies had been waiting to try and achieve was to inflict a decisive defeat on Napoleon's forces, and they had had great difficulty achieving that. Leipzig was uh, that success. Um, and it was indeed that success that Wellington was waiting to hear about, as Marcus points out. Um, the um, news of Leipzig does not really get to him, and it doesn't reach him officially until two days after the Battle of Nivelle is fought and won. Um, and uh, from Wellington's perspective, that is the information he's been waiting to hear. Uh, so Leipzig is, is a significant victory. It, it forces uh, Napoleon to have to pull back again. He loses great number of troops, um, yet more great swathes of uh, artillery. And it is a game changer in terms of the Allied advance on northern France. I think it's also significant in that post the Battle of Nivelle and post Leipzig, Napoleon needs more troops. Where does he find them? He asks Soult to send him more troops. And poor Soult has to send Leval and Bayer's divisions up to support Napoleon when he desperately needs men himself. So he was, he was already stretched and now he's dangerously stretched. So one of the things that Napoleon thinks that um, might uh, solve his problem, certainly down in the south, and enable him therefore to concentrate his defences and therefore his um, his troops, his positive troops, on the north and and particularly the defence of Paris, uh, was to um, entice. Ferdinand VII, Fernando VII, who had been um, imprisoned in Valencay, the Chateau de Valencay, which was Count Talleyrand's uh, chateau. And he'd been imprisoned there uh, since 1808, when he and his father, Carlos IV, had been enticed to Bayonne and both stripped of their crowns. And at that point, Murat was put on Napoleon's brother-in-law onto the throne in Madrid in anticipation of Joseph taking the job in due course, which he did. Um, well, what the Treaty of Valencay was aimed to do was uh, to return Ferdinand VII to the Spanish throne in agreement that the Spanish would cease all support for the British and uh, any uh, allied armies, and therefore ipso facto the Portuguese as well, operating on Spanish soil. Um, and this 
Napoleon felt at a stroke would therefore solve two things. It would mean that Britain's position in the um, south of France, as it was now, would be untenable, and that furthermore, they wouldn't be able to stay in Spain either. They could go back to Portugal with the Portuguese allies, but they wouldn't be able to influence things from From. there. Uh, Secondly, it would enable him to start moving these troops to the north. Now, we've already talked about how many troops Sue had. He came over the border. He'd re- uh, organized those armies in within 10 days of himself arriving on the 12th, 11th, 12th of July. Uh, and he had about 120,000 men. Now, not all of them were in the field. It was about 80,000 infantry. The balance were artillery engineers and logistics support troops. But a lot of them were actually trainers uh, training this uh, these large numbers of uh, new recruits, the levy uh, that Napoleon had introduced in the wake of the failed Russian campaign. And uh, the idea was that uh, all these new National Guardsmen would come out of the training depots all across France, but three big ones were in the south, in Bayonne, Bordeaux and Toulouse. Um, and actually what... Uh, happens is that at this critical moment, Treaty of Valencay signed. And in fact, even before it was signed, he and therefore before the battles of the Neve, uh, so in between Nivelle and Neve, he strips Salt out of a great swathe of these youngsters. And in fact, he takes all the youngsters, it's fair to say. And he takes um, some regulars from the existing battalions, all of Salt's battalions. So he will take you know, from a battalion, 10 officers and uh, 20 NCOs, for example, um, from all of the regiments to uh, then create new regiments with these uh, youngsters and these um, battle-hardened elite to provide the nucleus for these uh, new battalions that he's creating. And that leaves Sue, basically, from the Neve onwards, with about half the number of troops uh, that he had before. He's only got about 45, maybe 50,000 men from now on in. Uh, and certainly when he's got to continue maintaining and garrisoning uh, Bayonne and Toulouse, that reduced his options in the field quite considerably. And you mentioned this treaty with the Spanish. Presumably that was a bit of a flop. Yes. I mean, uh, Ferdinand uh, Seventh signed it. He had absolutely no intention uh, of uh, of agreeing to it. As soon as he got uh, back over the Pyrenees and on the road back to Madrid, um, then he you know, he just ignored the, the whole thing. But you have to also understand there's a lot of uh, machinations ongoing with the Spanish at this stage. Um, there are those that have evolved. It's very complex, this, whilst the emergency Cortes was in Cadiz. Uh, on the one side, you've got the liberals, the liberales, and on the other side, you've got the servilas, the servas, the conservatives. And those two groups um, had disagreed prior to the war. They certainly disagreed through the war. Uh, El Rey, Ferdinand, when he comes back, he's supported by the serviles. But this starts to branch out, and we can see this. We can see a direct line then between uh, the two sides that fight in the subsequent Carlist Wars, the civil wars in Spain uh, throughout the 19th century. And if one was to take it further, although it's probably beyond the scope of uh, of this podcast, um, you can actually start to draw lines then to the Republicans uh, with the Liberales and the Nationalists and the Civilis and, and the Civil War in the 20th century. And I think Charles Esdale said, and I think you quote it in your book, that uh, the, the, the British, Spanish and Portuguese hated each other, but they hated the French more. 
Yes, I mean, we, we have to be clear. I'll let Marcus talk about the Portuguese because Britain had a, you know, it's still to this day, it's the longest uh, military alliance in the history of military alliances, which is quite uh, extraordinary. But we have to also be clear that the British and the Spanish were not blood brothers. I mean, Spain's natural ally was France. You only have to look at the wars of the 18th century, uh, which is um, and, and is often called the Second Hundred Years War. I mean, Britain's a war with France throughout. And by France's side through nearly all those engagements is Spain. So for Napoleon to turn on his Spanish ally uh, was, in some respects, it was a schoolboy error. Again, it's very complex as to why he did it. Uh, And the main reason was he had um, ambitions in the Middle East, actually, in the Ottomans uh, and the declining Ottoman Empire, as it was even at that stage. And he needed naval ships. And Trafalgar had robbed him uh, of that um, ability to put out a strong navy, particularly in the Mediterranean. And uh, and therefore he saw um, taking over Spain rather than leaving Carlos or getting rid of Carlos, who was deeply unpopular and putting his son Ferdinand VII on the throne and manipulating Ferdinand, uh, which would have been a much better option. Okay, easy to say in hindsight, but he doesn't do that because he wants full control of the Spanish naval assets. And that's why uh, he goes down that route rather than the route of um, of manipulating the king and therefore being at the king's whim as to whether or not he got those naval assets, which he badly needed. Brilliant. Well, I think this is a really good segue then to bring Marcus in to answer the question, and we can speak quite broadly here, going back all the way to 1808, if you want to, Marcus, about how important during the Peninsular War the Portuguese were overall and how how important that integration between the British and Portuguese was and what that relationship was like. Can you can you explain that to us? Yeah, well, I think we have to be a little cautious because most of the accounts of the war and the war in Portugal are written by British officers from a British perspective. There are some Portuguese accounts, but they're quite sparse and not as detailed. And I'd just be a little wary of some of these because I'm not saying it was fashionable, but there are a number of accounts which play down the Portuguese contribution and indeed play down the the sort of almost civilised aspect of Portuguese society. And I think we just need to be very, very careful. Having said that, there's no doubt in my mind that Portugal by itself could not have rid Portugal of the French, and that Wellington's or the British intervention was absolutely crucial. Likewise, though, I think it is unlikely, though not impossible, that Wellington could have rid the Iberian Peninsula of the French without Portuguese assistance. And let me just develop that a bit, because you have, of course, Um, The British government, at the request of the Portuguese, sends out Beresford to reform and rebuild the Portuguese army in early 1809. The Portuguese army had effectively been dissolved, dismantled by Junot when he captured Portugal or he captured Lisbon at the end of 1807. And the only really decent regiments in the army, which had been neglected a bit, were sent north to fight for Napoleon. Uh, and did so with some distinction until they were virtually dismantled uh, and destroyed in in the retreat from Moscow. But 
another aspect which sometimes is overlooked is that the officers in the old Portuguese army, if I could put it like that, how many of them had gone to Brazil with the crown. The whole administration, the Portuguese administration, was removed from Portugal to Brazil, leaving in place a regency. So the officer corps had itself suffered a, a, a dispersion to Brazil, to England, to Northern Europe. Beresford arrives on the scene in 1809 with the assistance of British officers and Portuguese officers and young Portuguese officers promoted up quite fast, uh, builds up a Portuguese army of some 52,000 men, leaving apart the militia and the ordinanza, the levy en masse, leaving that apart. He builds up this army. Now it does suffer repeatedly, uh, much to Beresford's frustration from large scale desertion. And we probably don't have a, a chance to go into that here. But effectively you have this army, which in a very short time shows its mettle because at the Battle of Bosaco, it stands in the line. What has happened is that over Christmas 1809, 1810, before the French third invasion in 1810, Wellington and Beresford inspect the Portuguese regiment. Wellington is so impressed that he decides to brigade the Portuguese with the British. And something which I don't think he ever did with Spanish regiments. He brigades them with the British. And from thenceforth, they perform, I think, very, very well. And indeed, uh, 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 and one doesn't want to sound condescending about it because, you know, it's easy to say, well, that was due to the fact that they'd been trained by British officers. They'd now adopted the British regulations, which of course assisted, no doubt, because then you had them all acting in concert. But from there on, and at Busaco, he praises them. At Ciudad Rodrigo, he praises them. Um, even at Salamanca, where they run into a lot of trouble, um, it, Wellington is very supportive of the Portuguese. And when he goes to the long march north in 1813, he takes with him all bar, I think, three uh, Portuguese regiments. So he takes virtually the whole Portuguese army with him. And that makes up one third of Wellington's infantry on the long march up to Portugal and one sixth of his cavalry. Now the Portuguese cavalry was never that strong and, and couldn't be used as a heavy cavalry at all. It was more for reconnoitering and those sort of duties. But the significance of it is that one third of his army, uh, of his infantry is Portuguese and they perform very creditably at Vitoria at, uh, and at the battles we're gonna be talking about in Southern France. But there is a problem. One of perhaps the French, uh, one of Wellington's and, and Beresford's most adroit supporters in the Portuguese Regency was Dom Miguel Fortas. And to him, uh, he was the man who organized things in Portugal for Wellington and Beresford, even when other members of the Regency were lukewarm or even uh, opposed what Wellington was trying to do. But by the end of 1813, the war was a long way from Portugal. It was a thousand kilometers away. And Portugal itself, had been destroyed, literally destroyed, by five years of continual fighting. It, it had lost a huge amount of its population. A lot of its property had been devastated. And there was a distinct cooling uh, in a desire to support the war further. So much so that um, Wellington gets very worried and he sends Beresford back to Lisbon in October to try and almost rejuvenate the effort from Lisbon because there is a hesitancy. The Portuguese are still training troops 
in Mafra and the other training sites, but they're not sending them up to replace the Portuguese troops that have been lost in the various battles. And that is why, of course, Beresford is not at the Battle of Bidasoa even. He's back in Lisbon trying to encourage um, eventually, only eventually, in January, do the Portuguese send new recruits up to join Wellington, and then they send more again in March, who arrive probably too late to have been of any great consequence. But it is explained to, Beresford, uh, to, to Wellington, Beresford explains to Wellington what the problem is. And the problem is that the Portuguese feel undervalued. They are not being valued by their British allies. And this is causing huge resentment at this stage. And indeed, one of the uh, uh, motions that came forward was a proposal that Beresford should be replaced as commander of the Portuguese forces uh, by a Portuguese, Silveira. And uh, Wellington's having none of that. I mean, he doesn't even rate Silveira and he just says, you know, go away sort of thing. And, you know, you won't have me around if that's what's gonna happen, you know. But um, I, I think what is important is that Wellington does respond. And he says, look, I understand this. He says, um, and he makes sure that the Portuguese, both the troops and the officers are praised in his returns, his reports on battles. But he goes further and he writes to the British government and says, get King George to mention them in his addresses to the nation, in any press releases, so that there is this sort of plumassing, if you like, is an Irish word we use to, to, to encourage the Portuguese. So I, I think that's, that's important. I, I just say about desertion, there is quite a lot of Portuguese desertion in the winter of 1813-14, but it's not to go over to the enemy, I hasten to add, it's to go back to their families in Portugal, <laughs> whereas I say they're trying to rebuild a shattered society. I'm sure. I mean, just as a very brief aside, um, YouTube comments are not a good way to to judge the mood of a nation. But having said that, on my YouTube videos about the Peninsula War, when Portuguese people comment, it's very complimentary towards the British. There's a lot of, you know, we were in this together, great friends, oldest allies. And when Spanish people comment, it's essentially giving me two fingers you know, uh, talking about my, my Anglo-centric views and uh, how the Spanish actually did everything and the British just took all the glory. So that's just my, my interesting aside as to how those two nations seem from based on my very limited experience of YouTube comments of how people seem to look back at the history of those two nations respectively. There's absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, the, to the Portuguese, this was a war of independence. For both of them, it was a war of independence. But uh, to the Portuguese, they saw this as, you know, fighting it with and yeah. alongside the British. Absolutely no, no question about that. But I come back to the point I made about, you know, the Spanish not being blood brothers. I was the senior British officer in Spain for seven years. And, and there is absolutely no doubt that the Spanish, this was a crossroads in their history. They'd been this great empire. And in many ways, this was the final demise. I mean, by 1820, the Spanish influence in the Americas has almost, uh, it has almost vanished. I mean, it's gone from North America, Central America, they're left with a couple of islands only, and South America, they're, they're almost out completely. I mean, the, their demise within that 20-year period um, is nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, when the uh, commemoration started in 18, in, sorry, in 2000 for the bicentenary, I refer to here, in 2000 and 
1807, because of course the war starts in 1807, not 1808. That's when we saw the Peninsula War start. But the French troops, of course, crossed Spain in 1807. Um, there was an article in their uh, equivalent of history today, Historia. Um, it was about a 20-page article. And um, actually, you'd be forgiven for thinking that there were no British troops actually in La Guerra de la Independencia. There was a couple of photos uh, of paintings of Wellington, but it was all about what the Spanish had achieved. And that's the way they view it. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's not a, um, a warm period of their historical past. I mean, their great ally France had turned on them and they, they find that extremely difficult to deal with to this day. Well, that's probably a really good segue, Nick, to bring you in then on the Spanish army at this point. I, I, maybe I'm being a bit premature, but um, I understand at first Wellington was wary of taking them across the border because he was worried about how they may interact with the French civilians. What what did happen? Can you give us an overview of, of the yeah, Spanish? I, mean, I think I think that's pretty much it. I mean, the, the British were elated at being in France. I mean, the concept in 1808, when let's go back to that memorandum that Wellington penned uh, for um, for Castlereagh, uh, that he could hold the Portuguese border with 30,000 men. Um, at that stage, if someone had said to Wellington, do you know in six years' time you're going to be crossing the Pyrenees and invading France? He would have just laughed at you. I mean, it would have been, it was inconceivable. It really was. Um, so I think the British and Portuguese officers would have been elated. Well, let's leave the Portuguese aside. The British officers and men would have been absolutely elated, but they would have been concerned too uh, because they would have felt that they were now entering into a position uh, whereby they would be faced with a guerrilla war in very much the same way that the French had faced in both Spain and Portugal. Very little is written about the, the guerrilla struggle that the, the French troops had to endure in their time in Portugal, but it, it was you know, just as prevalent and, and probably just as effective. Um, and they don't end up facing. So they, they would have had this mixture of finally we're entering France. Finally, we're taking the fight to the French, which is what we've always wanted to do. But with our tiny expeditionary army, we've been unable to do. And that reinforces Marcus's point that the British couldn't have done it alone. They needed their allies uh, to achieve this uh, crossing of the Pyrenees and pushing the French back. Um, but at the same time, uh, there was a huge concern with both, not just the Spanish, but the Portuguese troops as well. Uh, Marcus has alluded to the fact that their country was devastated. Yes, it was. And there was a there were a lot of Portuguese and Spanish soldiers who wanted to get into France and give them as good as they had given to their countries and to their people and potentially to their families. So um, there was a great deal of concern for Wellington. We've heard that uh, the war uh, from the Portuguese perspective is now um, many hundreds of kilometres away for Jazz. Uh, it's got to rebuild Portugal. So money was not forthcoming. Um, and that um, was mirrored by a, a similar sort of um, set of problems that the Spanish government, which I've alluded to, were facing, having extracted themselves, uh, the Cortes, back into Madrid. Uh, Fernando VII was coming back, of course. 
Um, and so they were preoccupied, and that meant that they weren't providing uh, with uh, the Spanish troops that were under Wellington's command with supplies, uh, with money, and so on. And so with troops not being paid, they've got no choice. They have to plunder. Um, so those two things were a massive concern to Wellington, plunder and revenge. And he had to make absolutely sure uh, that he was not going to tip the people of Aquitaine, who were Basques. We have to remember that for a great swathe of this area, these people are Basques. In other words, the same people as in northern, uh, northeastern Spain. You know, that's an important uh, point that, uh, that needs to be made. And so um, his preoccupation is to make sure that the Spanish uh, are held at the border. He sends pretty much all of them back, apart from Murillo's division. Um, but he's got them on a war footing. I mean, he doesn't sort of say, OK, you can push off now. He sends them back. They are just south of the border, but they're in Spain. So it's a Spanish responsibility to feed them. Um, and uh, he keeps his Portuguese troops in because by this stage and since 1809, it's been an Anglo-Portuguese army. It's not been a British army, something I have to remind people all the time. And the British army did this. and the, Well, they didn't actually. It was an Anglo-Portuguese army. And it, it had been really since those early battles in 1808. So um, that's why uh, um, Wellington is concerned about his Spanish troops. But they've done well. They've served him well, like the Portuguese troops. You know, we you know far too many uh Anglo-centric histories um, have derided uh, the contribution made by not just the Portuguese, as we heard from Marcus, but the Spanish as well. Uh, and one of the great uh, deriders was, of course, none other than William Napier himself in his masterpiece. Uh, but it is a xenophobic piece of work, and, and we have to approach it as such. I think Nick's turn touched on another important point there actually Christian and that yeah. is um, the shortage of supplies and money uh, which Wellington now had at this stage and I just give you one example that he's and it's one of the reasons he again why he moves forward so slowly repeatedly because he, he can't buy supplies and he doesn't want to plunder supplies and he, he's waiting for funds to come whether from England or from uh, Cadiz or wherever it happens to be and in November, I think there's a, if I recall, it's either October or November, 200,000 pounds comes up from Lisbon. And this is the British subvention for the Portuguese. But when it arrives, Wellington has to plunder it himself. And he ends up giving 40K to the Spaniards to keep them on a war fitting and 10K to his own cavalry to keep them going. So Beresford is short of money and his Portuguese troops are already uh, five or six months in arrears of pay. So th there's this sort of dynamic going on as well. I just make that point. Can you talk me through the final battles of the war and, and, and uh, you know, the end of the Peninsular War, so to speak? Can I just deal with the final battle of 1813, the Battle of the oh. Need? In a very oh, you certainly can. Sorry. Way, Christian. I mean, uh, what happens is after Nivelle, there are heavy rains in the Pyrenees and it makes moving forward virtually impossible. And the Pyrenees, everybody thinks south of France, lovely sunny spot, but the rainfall there is equivalent to Ireland. So let's put it in perspective. And, you know, this stops. Wellington has the army actually winter quarters after the Nivelle for a while. And it's only in early December that it dries out again. And then we have the battles of the Neve and St. Pierre on the 9th and 10th of December or 10th, 12th of December, which 
push the British and allied line rather forward again. But Soult's in real trouble because he has the uh, desertion then of, of the two regiments, the Nassau regiments. They obviously have heard of what's happening in Northern Europe. And indeed, uh, uh, there is, uh, I think it's reported that the, the Duke of Nassau has sent them an instruction to, 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 to cease to fight for the French. And they go over en masse to, to Wellington. I mean, literally just walk through the lines and, you know, walk, walk through the lines and, and, and join the British army. So Soult's in real trouble there. And I just think after the Battle of Nivelle, which I, I'm not going to, it's quite a complex one, but he's forced back. Um, Soult is forced back to the northern bank of the Adour, anchored on his right, the Allied left, with Bayonne, the great fortress of Bayonne, and then the river, and uh, the river runs uh, east, and then north, and then east and south again. And in the Pyrenees, there are all these rivers that run north from the Pyrenees mountains. They run directly north and join the Adour. And what Wellington, uh, what Soult does then is he develops a linear defense along these rivers, or he attempts to do that. Uh, and we'll come to that. But I think there's one other thing that is quite interesting is that at the end of November, the 21st of November, um, we have Wellington uh, in discussion with Bathurst, suggesting that he's now heard about Leipzig, of course, that perhaps uh, Napoleon would not be the worst ruler for France after all. And perhaps we're not looking at the return of the Bourbon. And I think that that's just a, an interesting side note. And then you asked, uh, you mentioned earlier that the question of how did the British or the Allies feel when they got into France? And I don't know whether you want to deal with that now before we go to the final battles or, or whether you, you, know, you want to just press on to the final battles. Because I think that's <laughs> quite interesting. But well, I mean, I think, I think Nick alluded to it a little bit. He was, you know, he was saying about how, how happy they were. But I'm very happy to hear any examples you've got or something you'd like to, to talk about. That would be great. Well, I, I think uh, I just quote from uh, Dennis Pack, um, General Dennis Pack. Who, who, who writes home at this stage, and he's, he, he writes home and he's saying, Napoleon's house must now fall. So he's full of confidence there. Napoleon's house, that's how, exactly how he puts it. Um, and it was really dependent, any move forward was dependent on the weather, supplies, uh, and money, of course. The weather was just, I mean, absolutely appalling. And I think anybody who hasn't spent time in the Pyrenees couldn't, you know, maybe doesn't understand this because by mid-November, there was heavy snowfall, um, you know, and sh again, talk about Joseph Sinclair in the 71st. He says, we had always snow or hail, the hail often as large as nuts. We were forced to keep our knapsacks on our heads to protect us from its violence. Often for whole days and nights, we couldn't get our tents to stand. Many of us were frostbitten. Others were found dead at their posts. You know, it, it's, it's quite a picture, you know. And really is. other people wrote the same sort of stuff. But there were the pluses. They were now coming off the, they moved the regiments off the Pyrenees Mountains into the lowlands or the relative lowlands and the food was plentiful and they found it was reasonably priced. What's more, as Nick has alluded to, they found the Basques, most of them, quite friendly and supportive and they tended the injured. And, um, you know, <clears throat> Wellington reported, uh, as did Beresford, that the locals wished them success and seemed to want the Allies to succeed. And some Basques were reported 
to have sought out, uh, to have British officers quartered in their houses as a means of protecting them against the Spanish and the Portuguese. So it's a very interesting little dynamic going on there. But there was a, a fly in the ointment, and that fly in the ointment was one of Soult's generals, Harisp, General Harisp. Harisp was a Basque from the high country, from the mountains, up around Saint-Étienne de Bagori, and he had a huge loyal following. So there was this other element of Basques, and they were harrying the British and not being supportive. And it's very interesting because Wellington eventually loses, loses his cool with them. And he gets letters sent to these communities in both French and in Basque. It gets obviously a translation into Basque. And he says, if you don't behave, I'm past you now, we've, we've, we've won this part of the war. If you don't behave, I am going to do to you what you did to the Spaniards and the Portuguese for five years. I mean, that's a pretty dire threat, you yeah. know, which coming from Wellington, people often don't realize, you know. But just to say, for the officers at least, there was quite a relaxed life that winter. Um, there was pleasant interludes, hunting, fishing, um, plentiful trout in the rivers. There still are plentiful trout in the rivers in the Pyrenees. In the evenings, they had feasts uh, in the messes. They even changed for dinner. They eat chicken, capons, partridges, or everything like this. Um, they are drinking uh, good wines and um, they're smoking cigars, although there are reports that the supply of cigars are beginning to run out in December. Uh, Heaven forbid. <laughs> and one other thing is there's a shortage of fodder, though, for horses. And this is a very worrying thing because it's not just the cavalry that have horses, but all the officers have horses as well. And they go back and they, they develop a, um, a, a, a recipe, if you like, which I, I understand goes back as far as the Romans. And they thresh the thistles. They thresh thistles. Horses won't normally eat thistles, but they thresh them and grind them, and then they are, become fodder for the horses. So these are sort of aspects of that winter in, in the Pyrenees. Um, Nick, maybe you could just give us a bit of an overview. So after the winter, you know, uh, the fighting continues again. Can you, can you give us an overview of what happened? Yes, well, I mean, let's just close on the Neve. I mean, Wellington wants to push up uh, towards Bayonne. Um, he, uh, at this stage, uh, wants to push Salt's army away from Bayonne, in other words, towards the east, but he doesn't want to push them too far. And the reason for that, I come back to this, and this is the key, and this was the key to the book that I wrote on Wellington's Eastern Front, was that we've still got Marshal Suchet, and indeed Arisp, that Marcus has just mentioned, was one of two key divisional commanders that had been instrumental in securing a number of victories for the French forces on the east coast of, of Spain. And he was withdrawn following the Battle of Neve, brought in because he's a Basque, to uh, reinvigorate the local lads who um, were now being told, you know, you're defending your homeland or words that affect and therefore fight uh, a, a, a bit faster. Um, but he's, Wellington is really concerned that Suchet, um, who's taken command of the French troops also in Catalonia under Marshal Agarau, who's withdrawn, uh, so Suchet's got basically 70,000 men. If he moves from the Eastern Pyrenees to the Western Pyrenees and provides uh, Sioux with 
you know, he, remember, he's got 45, maybe 50,000 by this stage. Another 70 would tip him to 120 without uh, number Wellington quite considerably um, by this stage. So that is a, a is a real concern now. So they push up uh, to just invest Bayonne from a distance. But of course, it is Sue who moves his troops onto the left bank of the Neve or the, the west bank of the Neve and then back over to the east bank and then back to the west bank and then back over to the east bank where he fights the battles of Saint-Pierre on the 12th, 13th of December. Um, and it's in the process of that um, that uh, Wellington very nearly gets caught out. But uh, he survives some good leadership by General Hill and indeed by some by Stuart as well on the, the battles of Saint-Pierre. Um, and uh, they go into those winter quarters that Marcus alluded to. Wellington, and traditionally, you don't fight in the winter. You know, um, in fact, it was a cold winter. Um, winters at that period, uh, 1813, the Thames uh, froze over. You know, this is the period where the, you've got these Dutch painters painting all these people skating on the canals in, in the Netherlands. Um, and it was cold. Um, and Wellington is getting his army uh, out of the Pyrenees passes, uh, where in some cases they buried the guns under the snow with a view to going back and picking them up later. They were completely snowed in those passes. Uh, and therefore, he pulls the troops back on both the north and south of the Pyrenees itself and prepares for a reasonably long winter and to get the fodder ready for the operations in the spring. However, it isn't the spring, and it isn't the spring because further north, of course, where the weather's better, uh, albeit marginally so, uh, the Allies are preparing to push on Paris, and they resume their advance in January. And that sort of forces Wellington to get on with things uh, in the south, which he duly does. Now, um, you're going to be showing, I know, these maps that I've sent you. So one can see on the first map uh, just what a complex affair this movement was. Now, Wellington's got to do two things. He's got to continue to invest Bayon. We'll come back to that. So he leaves a large force, almost a third of his force to conduct that, while he takes the balance, calling forward the Spanish from the Spanish uh, border uh, to come up and join his army. And um, he then is his aim is to push Salt or Sue, I should say, to give him his proper uh, French pronunciation over to the east, but not too far and not too fast because he doesn't want to thrust him into the arms of Suchet. So this has got to be uh, timed also to coincide with the movements of the Allied advances in the north. Extremely difficult in a period when it's going to take days for communiques uh, to arrive to um, to outline just how well or not well uh, the Allies are doing in the north. Um, so he then uh, realizes that he's got to get troops onto the uh, onto the uh, north bank of the Adour. And um, so, what does he do this time? Having gone on the uh, uh, Atlantic side in Porto to the inland side to cross the Bidassoa. He now goes back to the Atlantic side with a strong force and bridges the Adour at a point 
beyond a bend. So the troops under Tuvino in um, in in, uh, in Bayonne itself can't actually see them, although it's inconceivable that they didn't have cavalry patrols patrolling the West Bank. Um, and I think this begins to show us that actually the resolve is now evaporating out of the French. I think that not only are the French people war weary, I think the troops are too. It's a little bit like the Wehrmacht in, in 45, you know, one can draw parallels there where you know the writing is on the wall and it's a question of survival now to get through the through the war itself now tuvino has got about thirteen thousand men but wellington bridges the adour in the most audacious operation 350 meters of this fast flowing river because uh, we're going to hear all these tributary rivers pouring into it it's a massive river and then it bends round uh, and before coming to the bar and then bursting into the very dangerous Bay of Biscay. And he does this by moving these French uh, fishing vessels, these chasse-maries, uh, through the bar. Um, and this is a real coalition and joint operation because you've got the French fishermen who aren't going to give these ships up. He's paying these chaps. I'm going to use your, so he, you know, he, he procures these ships from the French. French fishermen, the skippers stay on the ships. The Royal Navy put their chaps on the ships and then they cross the bar and get them in. Some of them don't make it. It's an extremely dangerous operation running the gauntlet of getting in the bar, but he gets enough in there after the weather uh, improves uh, for them to be lashed together, planks over the top and for him to push troops onto the West Bank. All of this within five miles of Bayonne. Quite extraordinary. Um, he succeeds in getting a force on the North Bank. They fight around the, to the North Bank of Bayonne, and now they encircle the town after quite a hefty fight, and they go into a siege of Bayonne. I have to say siege. I'm going to put it in inverted commas because it was never really prosecuted uh, with any great gusto. Meanwhile, Wellington, with the balance of his army, are pushing the French forces, Sioux's forces, back couple of things on this. The first is that Sue is using those rivers that Marcus uh, alluded to uh, that run, they are tributary rivers running off the Pyrenees, running almost from the south to the north and feeding the Adour. And he's establishing his defences along those. And you can see uh, on the map, they're about uh, five to ten miles apart. So a tactical bound for each of them apart. And Wellington is, is moving to each of those rivers and taking one after the other. And we'll come back to uh, the sequence of those being taken in a second. But in so doing, and this is clear on that map, it's a very, very complex map. Uh, you can see that Wellington's had to give independent command now to his divisional commanders. He can't control this. He can't put his arms around it. He's got to let these uh, chaps, he's got to give them, this is mission command par excellence, he's got to give them their task, they've got to push up, he's you know, got to, to allow them that flexibility, and that he does, and it succeeds, and you know, he takes one river uh, after another, and just running through those, the Joyeuse is the first, the Bidouze, the Saison, then the Gave uh, d'Orlon before the Gave de Pau, where it all comes in together, and he pulls his troops in together, uh, to fight a battle at Ortez on the north bank of the river. There have been some smaller actions at Garis, for example, on the way there. 
Um, but basically, it's the main battle, which is now taking place at the end of February, uh, 26th of February at Orthez. But just to link back with what's going on in France, northern France, uh, the Allies have been held back by some brilliant manoeuvring by Napoleon. He divides their armies just as he tries to do and succeeds in doing the uh, period two days before the Battle of Waterloo, before then attacking those divided armies piecemeal and holding them. He's outnumbered about three to one, but he succeeds in holding up the Allies to the point that actually both the Austrians and uh, the Prussians are losing heart. And they believe, and this comes back to Marx's point, well, maybe we could should just do a deal with this guy. You know, this is what Napoleon wants. This is what he's playing for, playing for time. And in the meantime, he's uh, using every ounce of his body and the skill that he had as a, as a great soldier and diplomat, using his staff like Talion to go and make negotiations and make offers to these, you know, not collect to the Allies, but individually, you know, making the point to the Austrians that, you know, his wife is the, you know, the daughter of the emperor and so on and so forth. All this is going on uh, behind the back. And Wellington, therefore, has to now again check because it's not until the Allies get a grip of themselves. And this is largely as a result of Tsar Alexander of Russia, uh, who's determined to keep the thing going. Uh, Marshal Barclay de Tolle is the commander of the Russian forces. And they managed to uh, kickstart the operations in the north and uh, the Allies push now on towards Paris. And what they basically do in very simple terms before that final closure in on Paris is that they entice Napoleon uh, at the head of the bulk of his army out of Paris down to the south towards Fontainebleau. And then they come into the north and attack uh, what's left there uh, with the army under uh, Marshal Marmont. However, um, moving back to Orthez, we now have a major battle, uh, which is, again, stretching uh, Wellington's forces. He succeeds uh, in uh, pushing back uh, the, the, the French defenders there before checking, waiting for news of what's going on in, in, uh, around or towards Paris before then uh, resuming the second advance, which results in them all closing in on towards Toulouse. Yeah, I think, um, Christian, if I could just take up those points there, just to be clear, we have um, Bayonne invested under Hope, um, so uh, on the Atlantic. Um, we have the central part of the Adour, which is uh, uh, fixed on a town called Perad, and that is where Beresford is with the 4th and 7th divisions, and then further west, we have Hill moving uh, through river after river uh, and, and stretching out uh, Soult's army. Wellington has come up from the south through Sauveterre, through Navaranks, and is uh, on the southern bank. And at the same time as Beresford's coming along the northern bank, uh, Wellington manages to get uh, the, I think it's the third division, across at, uh, at Berenks, which is just uh, east of Ortez. And um, in fact, there is some criticism of Soult for not uh, attacking uh, either Beresford's uh, uh, group or the troops that Wellington had got across the uh, across the river on the 26th because he had them slightly isolated. So Soult comes into some criticism, but I think he's in a really defensive mode at this stage. And indeed, um, neither 
Wellington and Beresford, who join up on the evening of the 26th, actually expect uh, Soult to fight on the 27th. They expect a further withdrawal, but of course it doesn't happen. Um, and the uh, a, a, a very heavy conflict uh, emerges. Um, Beresford on the left um, tries to, or is, is ordered by Wellington to attack the village of St. Boas, which is outside Ortez, has to cross a, quite a lot of marshy ground and they capture the village, but they get totally bogged down. And as a result, Wellington then uses the third and sixth division to punch up the center and bring Hill round on the right. Again, the French resistance is good. And Beresford says they fight better than they have done for a couple of years. But by mid-afternoon, they're in full retreat. And um, the consequence of Ortez is quite simply that Soult now has to choose between going north or east. East is the city of Toulouse with military provisions uh, and a garrison and an opportunity of linking, still linking with Suchet, um, but north, uh, difficulty, difficult for feeding the army. The land is not a great area for uh, finding provisions and he might become isolated at Bordeaux. So Soult probably makes a good decision in my mind by going towards Toulouse further west. Um, Wellington gets news that Bordeaux is showing distinct signs of the white cockade supporting the Bourbons, and he sends Beresford up to Bordeaux with the 4th and 7th Divisions, and they take the surrender of Bordeaux um, uh, in March, uh, I think it's the 10th of March or so, um, for, for, from, from Mayor, Mayor um, Lynch, another Irishman, uh, ironically, or of Irish descent. But uh, Wellington is really uh, very aware that things aren't over yet, and he tells Beresford to get back and join him as quickly as possible. Beresford does that with the 4th Division, marches back to join Wellington, who is approaching Toulouse, uh, and leaving the 7th Division to control the Bordeaux area. Well, I, I feel this is quite an exciting moment, uh, and uh, that we've covered so much ground and we're finally coming up to the, the final battle of the Peninsular War. So maybe that's a good time for Nick to jump in. <clears throat> this is all dovetailing in with what's going on in the north. The Allies are now really closing in on Paris. It's towards the end of March. It's worth making the point as to why Suchet didn't come over and help Sue, because, um, you know, there'll be some listeners who will be somewhat puzzled. You know, if you've got these 70,000 men, what are they doing? Well, actually, they're holding off the Spanish second and third armies and also 20,000 troops uh, which were under a British officer, 20,000 British and Sicilian troops that had been landed uh, from the Kingdom of Two Sicilies uh, in 1813. And, um, and so this, this two Spanish armies and, and these British troops would have numbered pretty similar to Suchet's army of 70,000. So if Suchet had abandoned, uh, which he had done by this stage, Northern Valencia, but also Catalonia and moved over uh, towards Sue's troops, he would have opened the back door, if you like, to this um, 70,000 strong force to just come in unopposed into France. And that's why uh, he stands firm where he is. And indeed, he never gets cha uh, chastised by Napoleon. So one assumes he did the right thing. Now, Toulouse, um, no one really wins the Battle of Toulouse. And Toulouse is a battle honour on the Arc de Triomphe in the same way that, um, you know, the Battle of Corona is... Um, you know, the, that's on British battle honours. It's also on the Arc de Triomphe. Um, Wellington had great difficulty getting over the Garonne River, another mighty river, um, which basically splits 
Toulouse, not in half. There is a suburb of Saint-Cyprien on the on the uh, west bank, but the vast majority of uh, Toulouse is on the east bank, and he's got to cross, therefore, the Garonne uh, to get to it. Um, and his sappers um, slightly let him down, it's fair to say, but nonetheless, I mean, the rivers are at full flow. This is March. Um, and uh, they haven't got all the bridging equipment that they need, it's fair to say. So after a few false starts, he finally gets across. I mean, there's an interesting period where half the army gets across when the boats are then, uh, the bridge of boats is is um, uh, is, is flooded and, and, um, and pushed away by the strength of the river. And that um, half of the army is left stranded. Uh, on the east bank and should have been attacked, it's fair yeah. to say, by Sue's forces. And it's inexplicable why they didn't. Um, but they didn't. Um, and uh, they survived long enough for the uh, weather to to um, to to um, uh, to uh, subside and for the engineers to re-establish a bridge and for the balance of Wellington's army to get across. And they've crossed now at the north, although they tried to cross the south as well and failed. Um, so the, he's got now elements of his army attacking that suburb and St. Cyprian, whilst the uh, balance of his army are going to attack then from the north towards the Languedoc Canal system. So you've got um, basically a lot of waterways, a lot of water systems here, which can be used very effectively by the defenders and are used effectively by the defenders and create massive problems for the attackers. Um, it's fair to say that they don't penetrate into the north. And um, after a few false starts, Wellington tries to give uh, both the Spanish um, and indeed to, to an extent the Portuguese opportunities here to earn laurels towards the end of the war, particularly the Spanish. They don't manage to succeed in pushing one of the redoubts at the northern end of this Calvinet Ridge. And he then pushes uh, Beresford, and I'll let Marcus pick up on this, with a force that moves around the east of the city, which then subsequently, after a bloody fight, secures the redoubts on the Calvinet Ridge. But it's at that point that the French withdraw into Toulouse itself. And of course, a few days later, uh, news of Napoleon's abdication comes in, and that's pretty much the end of the war. But perhaps Marcus would like to talk a little bit about that bloody fight, which was under Beresford's command to capture those key redoubts on the Calvinet Ridge. Yes, I, I think um, you've mentioned the fact that um, Sult fails to uh, uh, take advantage of the fact that um, Beresford and the 4th and 6th Divisions um, are cut off uh, when they have to, uh, when the uh, the bridge of boats is suspended. Um, and uh, they are cut off and, and Sult might have taken the chance. But as I say, I think he's in full defensive mode at this stage. Uh, interestingly enough, Wellington does bring his artillery up to the other side of the river so that if the French do make a move against Beresford and those divisions, he can enfilade them from the side. So he, he's very alert to that possibility, even though Sult doesn't uh, uh, avail of it. Um, on the day, 10th of April is the battle, Easter Sunday, no less, 1814. Um, uh, again, Wellington uses Beresford. Uh, he has a long march down between the Erse uh, river and the, and the Calvinet 
uh, Montrave hills, which are fully fortified by the French, um, across boggy ground. Beresford has to abandon his guns. There is meant to be a coordinated attack with the Spaniards under Freyre, but unfortunately Freyre, for whatever reason, uh, moves too early and his attack is repulsed with considerable losses by the French. And then when Beresford gets down far enough, he wheels right and they come up, the fourth and sixth divisions come up uh, the Montrave and the Calvinet Heights and they take the redoubts. They, the French fight very well. They lose the redoubts again in some cases. Um, the uh, Highland Brigade suffers horrendous losses in, in these repeated attacks, um, but ultimately, um, the Allies succeed, they take Montrave, they're now overlooking Toulouse. Soult pulls his, the remains of his army back across the canal into Toulouse, and uh, on the night of the 11th, he escapes east and marches towards Carcassonne, further east, and on the 12th, uh, Wellington enters Toulouse uh, to the acclaim, we're told, of the populace. Of well, course, Alan. the battle was totally unnecessary, um, in that Napoleon had abdicated on the 6th of April, but nobody knew about it down in Toulouse, communications being what they were at the time. And so is the Peninsula War now officially over, or was there any more little skirmishes still carrying on for a while? To all intents and purposes, uh, once Napoleon has abdicated, because uh, Britain very much, I'm talking politically and diplomatically speaking here, uh, wants uh, closure with France. Um, and the way to do that is to say that the problem was Napoleon, not France and the French people. Uh, and this is a theme which they return to um, repeatedly at the subsequent Congress of Vienna, which starts, of course, that November. Um, and in fact, the Act Finale of the Congress of Vienna is, is signed in, in um, I think it's March 1815, you know, months before the final battle at Waterloo. Uh, but the thrust of it continues and it's expanded subsequently. But Britain and Britain's position was that, you know, the problem was Napoleon and he's now effectively gone. And that does bring to an end the Peninsula War. The War of 1812 was raging and Britain wanted to put a lid on that. So actually Wellington's Peninsula Army was um, you know, unraveled at remarkable speed, actually, and a great swathe of it was shoved into ships and sent over to uh, the Americas and ends up fighting and losing the battle at New Orleans in December uh, 14, January 15. Um, but that was, and of course, that robbed Wellington of a lot of those very capable uh, troops for the subsequent battles um, of the campaign of 100 days, not just Waterloo yeah. itself. Brilliant. And then I've got a question. I think this might be for you, Nick, but Marcus, do feel free to jump in. A lot of the criticism I find people making uh, when I talk about the Peninsula War on my YouTube channel is a lot of people say uh, the, the Peninsula War was nothing. Uh, you know, the war was won by the Russians and the Prussians and the Austrians uh, and that the British army was actually, uh, you know, not even worth talking about in the grand scheme of things. Now, obviously, both of you guys know the stories of the Peninsula War and, and the broader stories inside out. How important was the British and Allied effort in the Peninsula, do you think, to the final defeat of Napoleon? Yeah, it's a difficult question, that one. Um, and you can, you can argue it either way. Uh, we have to understand that uh, this is an era of massive armies. Um, and the real fight was 
on you know in the central part of the continent of Europe. So point number one, Britain's army is small and expeditionary, always has been, um, and it continues to be, and it's kind of moving more that way again um, as we see the news on a day-to-day basis. Um, it links up with uh, its long-term ally, and it is um, forced into um, an alliance with a country that it's um, traditionally been at war with. Um, but... Um, the naval supremacy thing plays a part. You know, after all, the Iberian Peninsula is 3,300 kilometers of coastline, and that helped enormously. Um, and as uh, Fisher said, who was first sea lord, um, Trafalgar may have, um, you know, given the British sea supremacy, and he wrote this at the beginning of the 20th century, just prior to the First World War, uh, but it didn't prevent Austerlitz. Um, and that's the key thing here. You know, massive armies are needed to defeat massive armies. You need boots on the ground. Um, so had Napoleon not um, invaded Russia and had he still have retained his large army, notwithstanding the fact that his relationship with Tsar Alexander since Tilsit 1807 was um, deteriorating, but he'd secured other alliances with his marriage uh, to the Austrian princess. Um, and the Prussians were still reeling from the military defeats that they had uh, endured. And so I think it's fair to say that um, on its own, without the Russian campaign, that the peninsula would not have been a uh, the showstopper that it was, or it would not have achieved what it actually did achieve in the end. With Russia, it was pivotal. And that's the key thing, because um, had uh, it not been ongoing and, um, uh, you know, um, it had been unsuccessful, and Napoleon had been able to come back from Russia and use the troops that he had in Iberia um, and uh, without the pressures of having to uh, establish treaties with the French like Valence, uh, with the Spanish like Valence, then I think things would have been different. So I think that, you know, it's a difficult question. Um, I don't want to overplay it. It was um, a great achievement by the Allies there, but it was made greater in terms of its achievements as a result of Napoleon's miscalculation with Russia. And what do you think, Marcus? Do you have any anything else to add to that? Well, I, I just, yes, I, I just want to, just to emphasize one point that Nick made there. I mean, at the Battle of Leipzig, I think there were close on 600,000 troops engaged. I mean, that's on a different scale to yep. what was happening down in the southwest of France and even at Pretoria. I think Wellington played a pretty masterful hand in the peninsula. Um, And I think he had this confidence and self-belief in himself, Um, even in the darkest moments. I mean, the retreat from Talavera. Okay, Talavera is a tactical victory, but he has the retreat from Talavera, the failure to take Badajoz in 1811, the absolute disaster of the siege, the retreat from Burgos in 1812. He he, he, he never gave up and he, he, he was really determined. I also think that without detracting from Wellington's achievements, we should recognize that Soult was an able commander. 
And I, 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 I mean, there, I'm sure there are people who know a lot more about Marshal Soult than I do. But he held a beaten and discontented army. With that, he held Wellington off for eight months in northern Spain and southwestern France. And I don't think that was very... Uh, that was an achievement that is often recognized. And even after Napoleon abdicated, he didn't want to give up. Soult re re refused to accept uh, for another week or so that the war was over. However, having said that, um, I want to just reiterate that I think he missed two opportunities, at least, um, at Ortez and at Toulouse, when the Allied army was divided in each case, and a more assertive or aggressive general might have taken advantage of it. Brilliant. Well, thanks a lot, guys. And then before we wrap up, I believe you've both got uh, books on the subject. I'm sure most of the listeners slash viewers are already aware of them. But Marcus, you've got a new one coming out. And, and Nick, you've also got a few books around. So maybe you could both just take a moment to, to tell us what books uh, viewers might be interested in getting hold of and how they can get them. Nick, do you want to go first? Or? Well, yes. I mean, uh, the first book that I wrote... Um, which was very well received um, was my Peninsula War Atlas and the Concise History, uh, which covers everything. And interestingly, it covers also the Spanish battles that they fought against the French. So it's um, it, it's a very extensive work, um, which, as I say, was was very well received and was voted as the Daily Telegraph History Book of the Year, or one of them. Uh, it is really brilliant, book. actually. Yeah, it's one of my main references. Good. I'm pleased absolutely, about that. Absolutely yeah. superb. We all like it, Nick. It's great. Um, another book I wrote is on Wellington's Eastern Front, because this begins to tie in. You know, you, you, you don't understand, or certainly all the manoeuvres we've talked about, unless you take into account the whole of Iberia. And so the Eastern Front tends to get forgotten. So Wellington's Eastern Front um, is just a, a, that sort of little wedge, if you like, on the right uh, that completes the picture. It would be like doing a jigsaw, not having half a dozen pieces uh, to finish the picture. And I think that's an important uh, part and, and, and an important contribution to the whole narrative. And the final book is, is uh, my uh, campaign uh, series book, which covers the, the bit that we've really covered today, which was Wellington Invades France. And I'm not aware of anyone else other since Major General Beetson wrote his trilogy uh, at the turn of the 19th, 20th century that's actually tackled this subject. Um, I'm not surprised because it is uh, quite complex, but Bayonne and Toulouse, it's one of the Osprey campaign series books, uh, is the third one, which, which really concentrates on what we've talked about today. Brilliant. Uh, and, and I'm guessing any, those can all be found via sort of the usual places, Amazon and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. And Marcus? Well, um, I've sought to follow up my uh, biography of, of Marshal William Carr Beresford uh, with another biography, which is that of Sir Dennis Pack. Um, and it's being published by uh, Pen and Sword due out in March or April of this year. And it'll be interesting because it covers uh, well, it obviously covers Pack's entire life as, as, as a military man, but it covers this period in particular when he moved from being um, a, a regimental commander to a brigade commander and even a divisional commander. And of course, he um, is one of relatively few uh, higher officers who fought 
all the way through the peninsula, then fought at Catrebra and Waterloo, and then formed part of the army of occupation of France between 1815 and 1818. So I hope that readers will find that interesting, as I say, to be published by Pen and Sword um, in March or April of this year. And links for those books can be found in the show notes, so please do consider supporting the guys and buying their books if you can. While the narrative section of my Peninsula War season is now over, there will be some more episodes on the subject. In fact, this isn't the last you will hear from Marcus and Nick, so make sure you're subscribed to hear from them again soon. I've also got some fascinating episodes coming up on the Frontier Light Horse, who I call the Special Forces of the Anglo-Zulu War. I'll also be covering the First Anglo-Boer War and the Battle of Majuba. Keep in touch guys and we will speak soon.